You ever get to a place where you find it difficult to relate to somebody and say the words that they would need to bring comfort? Have you ever been in a place where no matter what anybody says to you, you don't find any comfort in the words that are spoken? You see, the prophet Jeremiah gets to a place where he's absolutely finding it difficult for him to even find the words to say to the broken and devastated people around him that are now in judgment over neglecting the word of God. In fact, he doesn't even know how he can even be a comfort to them. This morning, we're going to be looking at the second portion of the second lament in chapter 2, in verses 11 through 22. The first point we're going to look at this morning is unbearable sorrow, verses 11 through 13. Number two, open shame, verses 14 through 17. And number three, heartbreaking prayer, which is verses 18 through 22. Let's start with number one, unbearable sorrow, verses 11 through 13. My eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled. My bile is poured on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? As they swoon like the wounded in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. How shall I console you? To what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare with you that I may comfort you? O virgin daughter of Zion. For your ruin is spread wide as the sea. Who can heal you? You see, Jeremiah has cried so much to the point of the tears drying up. He can no longer find it within him to continue crying and weeping for his people. In fact, this section is one of the most painful descriptions in this book of the sorrow he went through as a prophet. To recap, he is a prophet that for years warned the children of Israel to return and repent to God and that destruction and judgment was coming. And he was ignored and outright rejected and even imprisoned for saying that. He was looked as the conspiracy theorist of his day, that he was just preaching doom and gloom. He wasn't telling the truth when he was absolutely right. And when things went down, he was completely accurate in his assessment of what was to come. You see, his spirit is now broken as he sees the devastation that he describes here. Little children and babies are dying from starvation in the streets of Jerusalem. Picture a child crying, Mommy, I'm hungry and thirsty, and the mother not able to provide the necessities. I don't think we understand that here in America. I think we're so used to everything being so readily available. But should we experience judgment to the extent that Israel did, we would learn very well what kind of misery they were going through. You see, the description here is quite shocking when looking at the statement at the end of verse 12. It says, their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. Essentially what the prophet is saying and describing is that the children are dying in their mother's arms. I want you to pause for a moment as a parent and picture this scenario. And I want you to place yourself in these people's shoes for a moment. Losing your children due to the judgment that you knew was coming and you ignored. 
and you didn't take any heed to the warnings. And now, it isn't just that you're suffering, you're watching your children go before you do. The prophet Jeremiah is so broken, he can't grasp or understand how they could get to such a horrible experience as a nation. To the point that he doesn't even know what to compare this to in previous history. There isn't even a reference. Israel, even when they were slaves in Egypt, had food to eat. They were taken care of. And they had the ability to take care of their children as well. This was now completely taken away from them. Some were taken into captivity. Others were left behind to fend for themselves and starve. Now I want to provide a little background if you dig into the history of Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon that overtook Israel. He oversaw the destruction of Jerusalem. According to scholars, he was actually quite careful originally to not go after Jerusalem because he had heard the stories of the children of Israel and their prosperity from Jehovah. He found that he probably would not be successful in invading. But there is a case made that Nebuchadnezzar used a sorcerer to reveal to him whether or not he could conquer Jerusalem. The account states that he fired many arrows in the directions of the nations around him, and each one split except for the one that was fired in the direction of Jerusalem, which gave him and signaled to Nebuchadnezzar that he would be successful in his conquest of Jerusalem. After conquering and dealing with Zedekiah, Israel's king, Nebuchadnezzar took the best and brightest to Babylon to serve under him. And he left the poor and desolate behind to fend for themselves. But he also didn't stop short of humiliating those that would attempt to escape by executing the youth and mutilating their bodies as a warning for his own people to not be drawn to them. The account here of the prophet of Jeremiah is more than likely of those who were left to tend for themselves and had no food or water to drink. Jeremiah doesn't even know how to comfort his people. How do you comfort those that you warn destruction and judgment and consequences are coming and the consequences finally arrive and they're devastating? I mean, what's, what's a way you can comfort? Tell them, told you. That's not a way to comfort anybody. You're seeing the devastation you knew was coming. And you see it on their faces. He didn't even have the words to say. How difficult must it have been to not even have a point of reference to understand them in this. There wasn't even anything else in Israel's history that Jeremiah could point to and say, remember we went through this, but it got better. This was the worst they had ever seen and experienced as a nation. This wasn't 30 men lost in AI. Much worse. There are places a person can come to that there really isn't a reference to truly understand the pain that they're experiencing. There are no words 
that can bring comfort at certain times. When a parent loses a child, that pain is inexplicable. And if you've never gone through that, you'll never understand. Especially if you've never experienced it before. There are things the children of Israel were going through that Jeremiah didn't have anything else he could point to to bring them a message of hope in this time. From a historical basis. In fact, he says, how shall I console you? How can I bring comfort? What do you say when the very painful truth you proclaimed was ignored? And the things that you said were coming were rejected as fake news. And now they're living that reality. The world can mock all it wants about the coming judgment of God. I mean, we have a month that we already proclaim our sin in pride. But God will not be mocked. And church, we ought to continually warn people of sin. There's one song that actually has gotten on my nerves. I get the sentiment behind it. It's played on Christian radio. Not so much now. But in a few, a few years ago, it was played on Christian radio a lot. And here are some of the lines of the song. Life gets tough and times get hard. It's hard to find the truth in all the lies. If you're tired of wondering why your heart isn't healing... And nothing feels like home because you're lost and alone, just screaming at the sky. And this is where it kind of goes off. When you don't know what to say, just say Jesus. There is power in the name, the name of Jesus. If the words won't come because you're too afraid to pray, just say Jesus. Now I know what some of you are thinking. You're probably thinking, Pastor Roman doesn't believe there's power in the name of Jesus. No, not at all. I do. It's just promising that if we just say the name, things will change in our lives is a false statement. Especially the next verse where it says this in the song. Whisper it now or shout it out. However it comes out, he hears your cry. Out of nowhere he will come. you got to believe it. He will rescue you. And the chorus repeats. Just say Jesus. See, the truth is, he needs to hear our hearts as the prophet himself will pour out his own. Jesus is not at our beck and call. Anytime we say the name, everything will change. He is the Lord and Master of our lives. Many Christians neglect the Word of God and cling to these ridiculous sentimental statements that have no basis in Scripture at all. They don't even read the Word of God and they think by singing a song about just saying Jesus is going to fix everything. You want to know what Jesus would say or God would say? Open the book. And he'll tell you. And he'll be honest with you. And he'll comfort you. He'll encourage you. He'll admonish you. But trying to connect with the Jesus that's found in Scripture without being in Scripture is literally 
falling flat on its face in a lie that you're believing. There's real pain and hurt. The real comfort comes from where God will actually speak his word. And the promise is found in his word. Nowhere in scripture do you find a verse that says, just say Jesus and your problems go away, by the way. I have yet to find one. You hear verses that say, I cried to the Lord and he heard my cry. But that is all in context, please. You might want to read the verses before and after and how you need to establish your relationship with God before just using his name. What he's left for us in his word, that's where you find the real Jesus. Not the one that gives you a sentimental feeling because you heard a nice song on the Christian radio. And I'm not opposed to Christian radio, but a lot of it's just mush and doesn't even find a lot of basis in scripture. Most Christian radio is like, positive, you're amazing, there's nothing wrong with you, God loves you just the way you are, stay the way you are. Everything will be just fine. It doesn't deal with any of the reality of struggles of sin. I love to see more amazing grace lyrics in our Christian contemporary music. That saved a wretch like me. And I don't mean the Chris Tomlin redo. I'm talking a brand new song in contemporary Christian radio that deals with sin in reality. This wound that Jeremiah sees on the faces of the people left devastated is deep. And he asks the piercing question, who can heal you? Jeremiah wants them to pause and think, and he's thinking himself. The solution was there all along, and you missed it. There's a lot to pause and think about when the prophet asks the question, because the wounds are an obvious pointer to turn to the healer that they rejected. Unfortunately, the nation did not listen to what God had said. And were openly shamed and ridiculed for believing the lies. Number two, open shame, verses 14 through 17. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. All who pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the, the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All of your enemies have opened their mouth against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day we have waited for. We have found it. We have seen it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has fulfilled his word, which he commanded in days of old. He has thrown down and has not pitied, and he has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversaries. You see, Jeremiah in this lament is reminding the people of the absolute falsehood that they were told by the prophets. 
I want you to pay attention for a moment for the very precise choice of words that Jeremiah uses here. He says, false and deceptive visions. False and deceptive visions. Now let's just take a look back in Jeremiah 14, where some of this is described with more detail in regards to the false and deceptive visions that there's a reference to here. Back in Jeremiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, here's what it says. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, that is Jeremiah, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. If we run through this, we miss what these prophets were saying. And what's interesting is that I normally don't care for the message as a use for Bible study, but essentially what the prophets were saying is essentially what many false teachers say today. Everything's going to be all right. There's nothing to worry about. That's the mark of many false prophets throughout Scripture and even in history. I'm sure we've all uttered the phrase as an encouragement to others, even without realizing that sometimes we probably are not really good messengers of God in doing so. And we've even said things like, it will work out in the end. It'll all work out in the end. I'm sure all of us have said it at a time or another. Now, to a certain extent, we do have that promise for us in Scripture, right? Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose, right? The ones that love God. But what if we're essentially saying that to give that person a pass on the reality that they have serious consequences awaiting them? It's one of the most dangerous things that happens in the church. It's okay, brother or sister, Go ahead and live in sin. God will totally be fine with that. It'll all work out at the end. As long as you follow up with the truth that there are devastating consequences, it'll work out for them in the end. We're not being that faithful brother or sister and are further sending them down the path of destruction by giving them false hope. There are a lot of Christians that give a lot of people false hope today. Oh, there is hope to be found, but it's found in Christ. That hope is not found in your identifying yourself as some sinner that doesn't care how they live. And assuming that God doesn't care how you live. That's false hope. And unfortunately, many Christians are encouraged to just live any way they would please that Jesus has forgiven it all, he's already paid it all, do what you want. That is not biblical. That's giving people false hope. In fact, back in Lamentations chapter 2, 
That is essentially what is described when, the, when Jeremiah says, the prophets have not uncovered your iniquity. What he's essentially saying is, the prophets didn't tell you the truth about your sin. Oh, they told you sweet lies. It'll all be okay. You're fine. Whatever Jeremiah's preaching, that whole doom and gloom stuff and judgment coming, don't listen to him. God is for you even in your sin. What he's essentially saying there is these false prophets didn't uncover their iniquity. What they did do is they denied the fact that these people were in sin. The mark of a believer that follows Christ faithfully is that they will not do that when it comes to their brothers and sisters in speaking truth. There is no true love of Scripture apart from the truth of Scripture. You can't tell someone you love them without telling them the truth if you want to be biblical. Ignoring the fact that sin affects our lives is not helping anyone. They did not keep the people from judgment by calling out their sin. You want to see God move in people's lives? Tell them the truth about their sin. Rather than constantly tolerating all sorts of stuff they live that we just don't want to say anything about. False prophets are the ones that encourage people falsely and give people false hope that everything will be just fine. When we know from what we've read in this text and even other references in the previous weeks that God deals with his own in a serious manner. Especially those that blaspheme the name of Christ. Woe to the man or woman that encourages continual sinful behavior and dismissing it as something that they don't need to worry about on their own. Or even worse, they celebrate it as something God would bless. That's what you see in the church today. Any pastor that blesses sinful unions in the church should not be behind the pulpit. A false prophet. That is not someone declaring the truth. That is essentially like saying, it's fine for my kids to play outside. I don't care if they get hit by a Mack truck. Go ahead, kids, play in the road. Nothing will happen. Without warning them, do we really love them? Every parent knows you warn your kids when things are about to happen to them that they're not aware of. Why do we not think it's different? Why do we think it's so different when it comes to people in sin? If you've read the word of God, you know how things turn out. It's throughout the whole text of scripture for those that do not heed the warnings of God. And the ones that heed the warnings of God, there is blessing. There is hope. There is encouragement. God is saying to Jeremiah, that these prophets were not just speaking something that they were mistaken on. They were essentially demonically influenced by means of sorcery. The word divination, that's a clue. That this is sourced from demonic entities. 
And I know the world doesn't want to believe there's a thing called demons. They really do exist, and they do move around this world and influence people. And there is Satan. And many that are proclaiming to be prophets of God are tools and literally messengers of Satan. Wow, Pastor Roman, you're being a little harsh. No, I'm just speaking what the text says here. Can't you be more loving? I'm trying to love because it's so serious. We haven't been warned enough as a society. The only thing this world has ever been scared of lately is coronavirus and possibly dying from that later. You'd think eternity would be more on our minds. You'd think the churches would be filled with people repenting of their sin. And yet, we're just giving people false hope. You're good, man. Just come out to our wonderful Easter egg hunt. You might win a bike. No gospel attached whatsoever. Whenever a person outright denies the pure teaching of Scripture when it comes to sin and gives a blessing over what God has clearly called into judgment, they are essentially working in opposition rather than the approval of God. If any minister of the word was to be honest when they read through this text, they need to know, would I be on the side of Jeremiah or would I be on the side of these false prophets that are giving people false hope? Am I speaking the truth to the people God's called me to? And unfortunately, many people like to just avoid books like Lamentations. They don't like that book. It's too strong for them to deal with. They prefer the the messages of joy when they forget that even the book of Philippians Paul's in the cell of a jail dungeon not exactly our cookie cutter Christianity in America you see this open shame was on display when the city was destroyed by the enemies of Jerusalem Jerusalem was supposed to be this incredible beautiful place The joy of all the world, if you will. But it had become a laughingstock by its enemies. The enemies of Jerusalem relished this moment to be able to laugh at them in their misery. We were finally able to bring Jerusalem to its knees. Tell us more about how wonderful your God is as we get to snicker and slander his name. And we get to mock what you've become. The shocking part in all of this is what Jeremiah says in verse 17, back in Lamentations. It says, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has fulfilled his word, which he commanded in days of old. He has thrown down and has not pitied. 
He has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversaries. Now I want you to notice for a moment that it says the Lord has done what he has purposed. He has fulfilled his word. You know when people talk about the promises of God, they always seem to mean it in a positive way. When we talk about the promises of God, we assume, you know, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Those are the promises we like to cling to. There are promises in Scripture that are promises of chastening if we step out of his will. And just as you believe the good promises that you like, you need to believe the promises that you may not like. Because they're true as well. And God doesn't break his word on either one of them. Christians only like the positive promises, right? Give and it will be given to you, right? Like those are the promises we love. Blessed are the persecutors. Eh, Lord, I'll avoid that one. If you don't forgive others, trespasses, neither will I forgive you. Oh, Lord, I don't know about that text. I don't want to, what does it really mean? That's what we do, right? That's where we go. Not the text I want to wrestle with. What do you mean God's not going to forgive me? I thought it's all covered under grace. I want to realize there's still a barrier that could be there between you and the Lord. You could still be his child and have quite a few consequences still to deal with. We're so shocked that things go bad. This is what the tension is in Scripture that many struggle with. Was it really God that did this to Israel? According to this verse and many other verses, yes. God has promised all the way back to the writing of the law that if the children of Israel did not obey, he would set his face against them and their enemies would strike them down. He promises all the way back in Leviticus. This goes right to the heart of many of the emotion-filled arguments we have when it comes to God. And why we don't like or disagree with the way he operates. God, I don't think it's fair that you dealt with that person that way. God wasn't asking you for advice. God didn't go, you know what, Pastor Roman, what do you think I should do? No, he asks me to ask him what he would want me to do. God does not owe us an explanation when judgment hits. But many times the answer is quite clear. Why did this happen? Many of these circumstances in our lives, as in the case of Israel, are because we disregarded his word. There's no complexity to it. Sometimes we're looking for a why when it's an obvious why. Like, Why did my relationship fall apart? I don't know, you didn't make the word of God a priority? You didn't make Jesus the center of your marriage? You made it all about yourself and your own pride? I mean, don't we do that in our relationships, right? It's about me. Like, that person makes me happy. It isn't what I could do for others. It's what can I do for myself to feel better about this? You see, if we were to ask if God caused this to happen, most would hesitate to respond with a yes. Because the version of God that many have bought into the church today is God would not do that to his own. 
And when bad circumstances occur in Christians' lives, people are shocked that they actually went through hell in this life. You see, if you were to say that the enemies were responsible for this, most people would resoundingly say yes. They would all agree, yes, the enemies did this to them. It's also true, but that's only part of the equation. The truth is both are true at the same time. In fact, this, clear, this text clearly, after describing what the enemy did, says that the Lord has done what he has purposed. I want you to listen to these phrases. He has thrown down and not pitied. He has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. And he has exalted the horn of your adversaries. So which is it? Is it the enemies or is it God? It's both. Nothing the enemy does cannot be apart from what God allows. And at times causes. In fact, this truth is proclaimed all throughout Scripture to even prophecy which is yet to be fulfilled. I don't know if you knew this. Where God has put into the heart of rulers to give their kingdoms to the beast to fulfill his purpose. You mean to tell me that even the things that seem to be contrary to what God would want are still fulfilled by him? Yes. Wrestle with that for a while. We get a glimpse at the response of hurt people, though. As we close out this lament in verses 18 through 22. Number three, heartbreaking prayer. Verses 18 through 22. Their heart cried out to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. See, O Lord, and consider, to whom have you done this? Should the woman eat their offspring, the children they have cuddled? Should the priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered and not pitied. You have invited as to a feast day the terrors that surround me. In the day of the Lord's anger, there was no refugee or survivor. Those whom I have borne and brought up, my enemies have destroyed. What a heart-wrenching prayer. The response to God's fulfillment of his word and judgment is tears flowing from a heart that's broken before him. You see, there are specific things that are mentioned by the prophet here. The first one is crying out to God for the children who are hungry. These are mothers whose children are passing away before their eyes. Anger. 
asking God for mercy over the gruesome things they would have never imagined to have participated in, including the eating of their own children to survive. You can't tell me this is a picture that many proclaim of God today. That God actually would allow this to happen and even cause this to happen to his people that disregarded his word. The priests were slaughtered right in the temple. Want to talk about the ultimate disrespect? Babylon came in and slaughtered them right in the temple. Desecrating the temple of God. The last thing that we see described here is lifeless bodies of men and women, boys and girls of all ages, killed by the enemies in the streets. I want you to picture this scene and realize that all of this, all of this right here, is their response of neglect to the warning of God. Pastor Roman, where's the hope? It just seems completely dark. Where can you find hope? Well, we'll be getting to that here in the next few weeks. But before God can bring us to hope, he takes us through very dark valleys at times. It's in the deepest of hurts that a person asks whether or not God even cares. I know you and I have asked that at times, do we not? God, do you even care about me? Do you even care about my situation? Why is it that their life seems so much better off than mine? Why do they seem to have the blessings and I have the curses? Why is it so difficult for me, God? It's in that state that God can move. Not in the pride-filled, I can do it, I'm everything I need to be. It's when we humble ourselves that he lifts us up. And those that are proud, he puts down. And many times those falls are very, very shocking. They're there to remind us that God always wants a broken heart before him. You don't just have a broken heart, believer, when you come to him for Christ to give you salvation. You come to him even as a child of his, boldly to the throne of grace, but because of what Jesus has done. Not because of what you've done. You've got nothing to boast of. Look at how you did this last week. Did you give yourself an A plus in the spirituality contest? I really walk with God faithfully. Not a single ill thought was in my mind. I treated my spouse with the utmost respect and admiration and love. I spoke well of others, right? All those things. We, we didn't do anything wrong this last week, right? The 
only reason why we can come boldly is because of what Christ has done. Not because of what we've done. We're still sinners saved by grace. We've been elevated to the status of saints because of what Jesus has done in his righteousness. Not because our you know, performance improved a little bit. God didn't go, oh, I'm going to elevate you to saint now because you did a little better today. That never qualified you. It's the heartbreaking cry of anguish when it's too late. And the damage is already done. Judgment is here. Where God still reaches out. When it seems like there's no hope left. When it seems like everything's falling apart. There is no way there can be any hope after this devastation. And God is looking for the brokenhearted. And he clearly says, those are the people that I will rescue. So in closing, what breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? You see, this lament ends with such a powerful image of hurt and pain, the pain of regret these people were experiencing. For them, it seems like it's too late now. For some of us, answering this question is a little more difficult than others, depending on what we've recently gone through. You see, some of us know exactly what breaks our hearts, because we've been crying out to God in grief for some time now. Broken, hurting. Over particular circumstances that we're facing. Maybe a person we've lost a connection with. Something we've done that has hurt someone else or God. And we've poured out our hearts before him. And asked God to forgive us. You see, some of us have... Nothing that we really find breaks our heart, though. There's nothing that we've even considered that breaks our heart when it comes to our relationship with God or others. We think we're doing just fine. And I venture to say that's the most dangerous place to be as a believer. To assume that everything's fine. But there's nothing that God wants you to come to him about. To not break in your heart for the things that break his heart. The truth is, many of us are positive about our relationship with God to the point where we just go with the flow. I'm going to do this church thing again Sunday morning, got Father's Day stuff, got plans after church, got this other stuff to get done. I'm going to go through the motions, be positive today, Father's Day. God's waiting for us to pause for a moment. Realize what is it that actually breaks our heart and hurts. Unfortunately, so many of us think that everything's going to turn out just okay. I'm fine. You haven't even given this thought. In fact, it's been a long time since we've even been broken before God. It's a very dangerous place to be. May our hearts break as fathers. And how we've raised our children not showing them the complete picture of God. Some of us are the cool, fun dad that 
we hang out with the kids and they have a lot of fun with us. And they should. Maybe we've dropped the ball in being spiritual heads of our home. Others of us are a bit more hard on our kids. Well, you know what God's word says, you better do it. We don't even show grace sometimes. We don't even know how to have fun sometimes, right? It's all serious. We've got to go to this next thing. We've got to read the Bible today. But Dad, I want to play a game. We need to read the Bible. All right, look, there's a time and place for both. Your children should have fun with you. They should also have you be their spiritual leader. The Lord is good. A father gives good gifts to his children, which means that fathers should exemplify that. We should be giving good gifts to our children as well. We should be that example that God the Father is to us. The truth is some of us are so hard on our kids that sometimes our children don't even enjoy being around us because we, they don't feel that they enjoy being in our presence because we don't seem to enjoy being in their presence. All this while where Israel is going through judgment, all God was trying to tell them is, I wanted a relationship with you. I wanted you to come back. I wanted you to come back. May our hearts break as parents when we tell the children that we raise the truth when it comes to sin and consequences. Parents, if you've warned your children in the past and you've stopped warning your children, that is not what you should be doing. I've already told them, they know. Time to stop. I'm praying for them. Maybe today is the day you pick up the mantle once again and say, you know what, God's called me to more than that. And I'm not going to be a coward. I'm going to deal with reality. I'm going to own things that are sin in my life, and I'm going to exemplify those things to my children and my family. Just to give you a glimpse of all of this, Jeremiah never stopped warning Israel. Not even when they were going through judgment. You want to be biblical in application, there isn't a termination point until that person's off this planet. May we not be a false prophet in others' lives dismissing the seriousness of the consequences awaiting a life without Christ. May our children see tears in our eyes where we warn them about the importance of the gospel. Rather than the tears of regret when it's too late. There is so much to be learned from what Jeremiah has gone through in this text. God is sovereign, and yet he holds us responsible. We believe in the sovereign grace of God, but we don't believe that God's sovereign grace tells us to check out and let him do everything. We don't have to do anything. 
that it's just going to magically work out at the end. Every minister of God that is found in the text of Scripture acted on what God gave them. May we be good examples to others in trusting the sovereign grace of God while at the same time realizing that God holds us responsible in how we communicate that truth to others, including his sovereign grace. May we never use his grace as an excuse for our sin. May our hearts break in warning others of sin before it's too late. Before our hearts break over seeing the consequences of a life apart from 